everybody, Eric Bischoff here, and have you heard about Strictly Business? Strictly Business is a brand new weekly series exclusively on adfreeshows.com. Join me and my co-host, John Helma, every Tuesday as we take a deep dive into the business of the professional wrestling business. And this is some straight-up business talk here. No fanboy nonsense. We discuss television contracts, advertising, licensing, and, of course, the highly debated ratings. So if you want an unfiltered, brutally honest, anti-fanboy understanding of the professional wrestling industry, well, Strictly Business is the series for you. And hey, if Elon Musk likes my tweets, and he did, you're going to love Strictly Business. Sign up now and listen at adfreeshows.com. Get the house you want with the payment you want at buywithconrad.com. And you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this at buywithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. The first step to buying a house is buywithconrad.com. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She booted. She booted. What a rib? No, yeah, but there's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. And, and was he there? I was there. Say something about I don't give a shit. <laughs> I ain't scared. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck you. Fuck you, Bruce. I love you. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Happy day in the neighborhood, by God. Just uh, several boxes of fluffy ducks, man. Hanging pictures, got stuff going up. We redid the, you know, the the offices and all that kind of guy. I would help if I put both of these things over my ears so that I could hear better. But uh, yeah, so it's a it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Going to have a whole new office rearranged and are you uh, redone and stuff? Yeah, wow! Can't wait to see it. Yeah, well, I I dare you to come up here. All right, you know I got to know when you're going to be around, bud. You know you're working. You know you working forty seven hours a day. So just so, saying, at least an hour every day. Hey, let me mention. Uh, we uh we got a lot of great feedback about our old school episode that we did last week on Hercules. But I did see one comment that I was like, you know what? 
He's right. We didn't talk about that at all. Somebody said, Hey, normally you talk about the guy's real life and his family and whatever. Can you tell us anything about Hercules family? Didn't come up at all. Got absolutely nothing. Sorry. They want me to at least ask though. So you can say, well, that. I appreciate asking. And, and that's what we, that's what we do. And a lot of times it will like diverge itself or divert, diverge, divert. It'll go in another direction, but no, I, you know, I can't ever remember, uh, meeting any of Herc's family or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's important to remember that a, a lot of these guys really keep their family separate from the business. And, and we know who those folks are. We don't have to, to mention them, but. You're talking to the point is, I know that was your way of taking a shot at me. No, well, it's not just you. It's Rick rude. And a lot of other folks, just uh, Kevin Nash were like, ah, this is kind of my thing. Let's let them be over there. And, and that's okay. But if they didn't bring their family around, it's not like you probably had a big relationship there, but at least we addressed it. And I'm glad that we're going to have an opportunity to address a lot of 1997 today, because we're talking about in your house, a cold day in hell. Uh, this is such a fun time in my fandom and just my fun, man. 1997 is so fun for me. And what we have here is Steve Austin's first WWF title shot on pay-per-view. It's also Ken Shamrock's WWF pay-per-view debut taken on big van Vader and unbelievably, and this is all your fault, Bruce. Thank you. Ahmed Johnson wrestling three singles matches in a row. You're welcome. Welcome for what? You're welcome. Okay. Uh, I want to mention it's only three weeks between the last pay-per-view, which was revenge of the taker. So just to sort of recap, we have a big WrestleMania event in Chicago. It does maybe the worst business ever up to that point for a WrestleMania, but critically a huge success. Even if it did wind up becoming just the anointing of uh, the undertaker. And most importantly, a match people are still talking about to this day with stone cold and Bret Hart. But then we follow up with an in your house uh, affair in April. That's revenge of the taker. And now cold day in hell. So two in your houses back to back king of the ring is right around the corner, but this three week window, boy, this feels less than ideal. I mean, once upon a time you had three months to build a pay-per-view and now three weeks, let's say, yeah, I like those longer builds myself. Just saying me personally, I think everybody does. Yeah. You know, but uh, you look back at the time, um, a little different times are different. Uh, that had got into the monthly pay-per-views and the audience, I think expected it. And as, as time went on, it just became, you know, another, another big event. So, uh, call them premium live events now by God, but, uh, they were just good old fashioned pay-per-views back in the day. The, uh, the other news that is, is coming out that at the time just made me wring my hands thinking, there's no way this is real. I can't believe this. I mean, this feels like it's, it's like one of those kayfabe news reports that you see online or whatever, where, you know, it's obviously a fake story, right? Well, this feels like that. Uh, here it is quote at Sushi Onita of the frontier martial arts and wrestling promotion in Japan held a press conference on April 16th to announce they're going to start negotiations with the world wrestling federation for a major show in Japan, full details of exactly what this entails haven't been released, but Anita got the ball rolling when he showed a letter Vince McMahon and Bruce, Pritt, Bruce Pritchard sent in early March, 
where the WWF attempted to open up a business relationship between the two offices. Onita, who along with Wayne Kanemura are scheduled to come to the United States, along with FMW booker, Victor Quinones in early May to meet with both WWF officials and perhaps Paul Heyman as well by participating in the show. The meeting is scheduled for May 1st. Although the story has already received significant play in Japan, as best we can tell, the only definite from a WWF perspective is they're going to meet with Onita and there have been no talks about anything other than setting up a first meeting. This is crazy. Now I'm sure a lot of our hardcore listeners probably don't even know what the heck FMW is. So let me explain. This is a hardcore blood and gut style. I don't know. Over the top attraction promotion that wound up running stadiums without ever having TV, but they were certainly a Japanese magazine. Darling Onita became a super legend here. It's his promotion, but he's also one of the top stars and they would have these crazy barbed wire explosion matches. And I'm sure some of our listeners saw clips of this when you guys ran some clips, I guess in the summer of 97 for the King of the death match tournament, or I guess that was IWA, but the same type of shenanigans, if you will. Uh, with Terry Funk and Mick Foley there in 95. But this is like, wait a minute, what? Bruce and Vince were talking to Onita? What happened here? Garbage. Um, well, Onita was talking to us. Onita wanted to work with us and wanted to look into the possibility of bringing in some WWE talent for some of his events in Japan. Onita had reached out to us, and you know, there's ways to do business with different people in different parts of the world. And that's how we did business with them. Said, yeah, Hey, we're interested through Victor Quinones that sure. We take a meeting with you and be interested in seeing what you have to say and what you're looking for. But it was nothing more than an exploratory, uh, from Onita wanting to work with us. We had no desire. I think at the time the, um, the garbage sheets had, you know, a bunch of, uh, rumor and innuendo about, Oh, people are looking to do an exploding bomb match in the United States and that we were going to do one for pay-per-view and or that ECW was going to do one on pay-per-view in the States with Onita because Onita is the only one that could do a exploding bomb match in the world is this Onita fella. Uh, We never had any desire to do an exploding match and it was, you know, there was a bit of apprehension in general about working with Onita at all, just because of the reputation of his company and the type of shows that he was running. They were um, very ECW-ish, but but even, even worse as far as a lot of the Gaga gimmicks involved. So why, why take the meeting? Well, you're always going to be interested in some, look, Conrad, if someone comes into you and says, Hey, we would like to do business with you. You want to listen to what they have to say. You, you've got to judge someone on what, what they bring to the table and look at it. Okay. Do we want to do business with them? Is there, we weren't doing business with anybody else in Japan at the time. And it was during a time that we were looking to be able to farm out some of our talent to different promotions in Japan and book them and reap the rewards. So why wouldn't you listen? I'm just fascinated by the, um, the, the process of how these relationships sort of office to office work. Are you thinking this one was simple? This was real simple. It was Victor Quinones. Victor Quinones was a consultant with us. Victor 
was the guy that we used. He worked with a lot of different promotions all over the world. And Victor worked with FMW and Onita and said, hey, you know, here's an opportunity to do something in Japan. Onita is interested. And that's all it was, was uh, all through Victor. And we listened to a lot of people. We did things with AAA through Victor. We did things in Puerto Rico through Victor. We did things in Japan through Victor. Chat me up, though. I'm trying to figure out, you know, is one of the things that you like the idea of, you know, I know we were, we're, we're knee deep in the war, right, with WCW, and they've got a relationship with New Japan. And obviously, there's no comparing New Japan and FMW outside of the fact that, you know, they are in Japan. Did you feel like the company needed a bigger presence there because WCW had a presence there? Um, I only ask that because we're not too far removed here in 1997 from you guys trying to do some stuff in Mexico around Royal rumble. So was Japan on the radar more than normal? Maybe not necessarily. I think that all international destinations have have always been on the radar and it's, it's timing more than anything, but because of WCW's relationship with new Japan didn't really have that much to do with it. You know, while WCW was in business with new Japan, we were still getting overtures from new Japan and all Japan, you know, throughout that whole relationship. So it's just, it's just business and listening to what people have to say. And ultimately you had the meeting and it just didn't go anywhere. Uh, I think out of this is where we eventually got to, you know, doing the match with uh, shamrock and Vader and Vader. Yeah. Yeah, but that was, you know, we, we didn't want to have any of our guys involved in in any of their stip matches and any of their exploding bomb matches or anything like that. We wanted our guys to work with our guys, so they were just essentially in negotiations for a match from us. I uh, I just love the idea of thinking, what if? Uh, did you ever have any conversations with Paul in this era? about a potential FMW ECW relationship, because we saw that flirted about once upon a time as well. Well, it was the same thing. Uh, Paul was looking at doing the same stuff with Onita. And I think that Paul actually brought Onita in and Onita worked for Paul when Onita came in for this meeting. Um, but I, I, the rumors of ECW doing a stadium bomb show are highly exaggerated and false. Do you think we'll ever see, um, another one of those bomb matches done here in America, or do you think that's ran its course now? You've seen it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think that there's any great demand for a bunch of, you know, pyrotechnics, which is essentially what it was. It was a great deal of of pyrotechnics and loud concussions and a lot of smoke and a lot of dust um, is all it was. There was no danger. There was no, I guess there was perceived danger because the referee wore some silly outfit. Um, But yet, you know, it's funny. The ring is surrounded by explosives, right? Yeah. But people at ringside are okay. Right. So the explosives will only... (laughs) You know, back those people in the ring. Well, now, hang on now. I mean, you guys used to bury a motherfucker on pay-per-view. Yeah, but the audience wasn't in danger of 
No, I know, but I'm just, here we're saying these are explosives are so incredible around the ring that they can hurt the participants in the ring. But the people sitting right next to it, they're okay. But I mean, you also set a guy on fire right at the ring, and what if he ran yeah. into the crowd? I'm just saying, like, there is suspension of disbelief. I guess what I was trying to get to is this explosion thing feels more like kind of you had to be there. It was time and place for the era. But I, I just. I don't really know that we'll ever see. I, it I would, and I and I don't know. Uh, I really don't know. But I can tell you from people like Terry Funk and Kirshner, um, who were the two that I talked to that day about it when we were uh, over there with Shamrock and Vader, where they say he goes, "Yeah, every time he does one of these things, the audience is less and less because they've seen it." Yeah, right. The, the gimmick is. Once you see it once, you got it. Okay. That was pretty bad. That kind of sucked. I couldn't see anything. I'm coughing. I'm, I'm, and it takes Conrad. It takes like sometimes 10, 15 minutes for the dust to clear. And you're just sitting there looking at a bunch of dust. And if you're anywhere on the floor on the baseball diamond, I mean, you can't see, and it's very difficult to breathe too. So it's it's a terrible experience live, in my opinion. And I think that you know, as Terry said, "God damn, once you've seen one ring blow up, you've seen them all blow up." Well, <laughs> rooms off the roads. I don't give a shit. Um, and by the way, your mother's a whore. He worked that in every time, didn't he? Yeah, he did. No matter what, no matter what. When we were on the when we were on the bus going back to the hotel, he said, "Hey, pull over so we can get some beer for Pritchard." Hey, driver, your mother's a whore. And they had the little they had the little machines on the side of the street, you know, like Coke machines, except they were beer machines. And they all had their little coins, and they went out put all their little coins in the machine to get Terry and uh, myself beer. Terry was very cordial. It was great. Um, and then we're going to go to that chicken place after Pritchard. You've got to have some of this chicken. That's what we did. This year, it's time to get off the couch and get back into the bedroom. Blue Shoe can help. Guys, we know that confidence can take you far in life. And when you feel confident, you're at your best, especially when it comes time to step up to the plate. That's where Blue Shoe comes in. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. You can take these dudes anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. Now, the process is simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. And here's the best part. It's all done online. So no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package. And guys, I've heard the lady say there's nothing sexier than confidence. Well, Blue Chew can help give you that confidence you need where it counts. And if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew for free. When you use our promo code wrestle at checkout, just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com. The promo code is wrestle to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank blue chew for sponsoring today's podcast.
Hey guys, are you looking for the perfect father's day gift idea? I was, and I found it at paint your life with paint your life. You'll get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You see paint your life, transform your photos into a one of a kind hand painted portrait done by professional artists. You can upload photos of anything you can imagine. You choose the artists and the art medium. They've even got great frames. It all takes less than five minutes to get started and you can get your portrait in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word wrestle to 87204. That's wrestle to 87204. Text wrestle to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. So here's another note from the observer in an unrelated deal. Pritchard and Jim Ross met with the wrestlers from Michinoku pro wrestling that appeared on the ECW pay-per-view on April 21st and at the Titan offices in Stamford, Connecticut about those wrestlers working in the WWF reports are that the chances of the two doing business together appear good at this point, And the WWF is planning on starting a lighter weight division, but is trying to work out the logistics of when the wrestlers and which wrestlers would be available at certain times. A potential deal with the Michinoku office provided dates could be adequately worked out would probably make the WWF's relationship with AAA in Mexico obsolete because Michinoku wrestlers offer the same type of action, but are far more polished workers because of the disorganized nature of the AAA office. The WWF has been having problems with the wrestlers getting the wrestlers they want on the dates they want, thus unable to give any of the wrestlers any kind of push or storyline. So let's work backwards. Was that an issue with AAA that you like some of the performers, but you just couldn't pin them down or guarantee that you were going to have them. So they couldn't really be in your long-term plans. The problem with AAA was communication. Okay. Um, you know, I'll go back to the, the first, when we started working with them and the Royal rumble, they take holiday in Mexico for, like sometime before Christmas until roughly February. And no one answers their phone. No one does business. So we don't take days off. Right. We continue to work. We continue to promote. And we had things booked. And just trying to communicate with them was challenging at best. Um, Very, very difficult as far as communication goes. So – it wasn't just, Hey, getting dates on guys that we wanted. It was getting to do business with them at all in any kind of a business like manner. Uh, they were very unprofessional. Uh, let me ask about the next piece here uh, because it's mentioned the Michinoku pro guys. And we know, or at least I know the first time I saw them was the barely legal show. But before I know it, Kai and Ty and your, your boy, Dick to go, they're a regular part of WWE programming is your first exposure to them, seeing them on the barely legal show or, or how did that come to be on your radar? No, um, Victor Quinones again, working in Japan, Victor had relationships with all the offices and Victor had talked to us about, um, oh, come on Sasuke. Yeah. And said that, you know, Sasuke is, was the owner of Michinoku pro and that Sasuke was interested in doing some business with us. 
So just like Onita and FMW, we were interested in, in hearing what they had to say. Then uh, Victor had shown us uh, Taka in particular, uh, Dick and Funaki. He said, these are the guys you want. And Heyman actually called me and was like, you do not want to deal with Sasuke. Only take Taka. He will be the future. He is the one you want. And uh, I believe that that was true. I believe that Taka was the, the most talented out of the group. Um, and as far as that time and what we were looking to do with the light heavyweight division. So the uh, the deal was, hey, let's let's do something with Taka and Dick to go and Funaki. Indeed. That was your voice all those years, wasn't it not? You don't know that. Wait, let me ask again. That was your voice all those years, was it not? You don't know that. No, no. Indeed. <laughs> we're out of sync. We got to get in sync. Uh, oh, we're in perfect sync. I, I, I loved uh, their presentation. I could see why you would be all about it. I mean, it was a totally different look and feel for the company at the time. Is this one of those deals where, and again, I know we just talked about FMW, but now this is the second time in the same 30 day period. We're talking about a Japanese promotion. Uh, are you communicating? Uh, we're also talking to so-and-so, or is it just like, ah, we're just reviewing our options and that's our private business, whatever. Well, no, it was, you know, a lot of it, this is what the precursor to the infamous, uh, meeting with Babasan. Uh, they were interested in doing business with us. They were interested in getting some of our talent to come over for some of their big shows. Uh, Onita was looking for a big uh, match, as was Sasuke. And Sasuke had, um, uh, oh, God, what the hell, Hakushi. Yeah. Who was going to be making his return in a big show there. And they were interested in doing something with Undertaker and also used uh, Chris Candido on that show. But um, it was business, which is business as usual. And it was kind of like going to the highest bidder and being able to protect what we did do over there and have complete control over it. Can you tell that uh, Undertaker story? I know you've told it at our live shows, but it's not like we're doing those again anytime soon. You don't know that. Which okay. one about, well, you went uh, allegedly when they wanted the undertaker, they, they, uh, someone decided, Hey, you know what? It might be cool if undertaker had a manager and Bruce Pritchard oh, yeah. well, fa found yeah, himself well. being in Japan with the undertaker and trying some drinks and trying to scoot around town and navigate. And well, late night in Japan, um, it is not the most friendly place. If you are an American, hang on before um, you get there, let's set the stage. They express interest in booking the undertaker. Do you say I want to go? Or does he say, can Bruce go with me? Or do they say, what about brother love? Oh God. No, no, that was dude, that me going out to the ring with undertaker was day of. Okay. Got it. That was, that was simply day of, um, that was a, a kick for me because 
obviously I had never worked in Japan. So right. I was like, yeah, you know what? This will be fun. Go out and it was Sumo Hall. And I thought it was pretty cool. A lot of history there. And I wanted to, to go out and do it. And That's Mark cool. was like, why don't you come out? Plus, I want to make sure that there were no, there were no shenanigans going on, Connie. Okay. So, so if the shit started to pop off, you'd just break out those. I'd have to, I'd have to just go in there and and start hooking people and shooting on them. And and that, at that time I was only two times, only three times black belt hall of famer and only a little overweight. So, oh God, (laughs) it's a livid. So anyway, you find yourself in Japan and, uh, we all know the dead man is, uh, he's down to fellowship. And so you find yourself fellowshipping with him late night somewhere, right? Well, no, we had a great day. Actually, we went over to do, do some pre promotion stuff and, and plus just to get over there early. So you can acclimate a day. And we went out with the president of Gong magazine, who in my book was one of the, the classiest, uh, gentlemen I've ever had the pleasure of, of being around. If you, I think that if you were to look up, you know, class and gentleman, his, his picture would be there. Just wow. a true, just wonderful, nice man. And he just wanted to meet Undertaker. And, and we went to dinner, went and had sukiyaki, and he let us take his his car for the rest of the trip, um, which was fun. We went out. We had some um, beverages. Yeah. Yeah, and there's uh there's one particular place that serves uh what the boys affectionately call them opium shots. Oh. And uh they're they're liquor with wormwood and, and it was it was the real absinthe, but it actually had wormwood in it that they make opium in and uh opium with. So we went and take us like, Oh hey man, we gotta we'll go by and get an opium shot. And I'm like, Well, all right, well, let's do it. So we did it. We're sitting up on the roof of this bar and it started to rain. We got our opium shot and, and I was, you know, typical. I don't feel anything. Right. Let's get another one. Oh, Bruce Pritchard. One Oh, anything to me. Here we go. Another round. He's like, easy, big boy. It's gonna, it's gonna come say hello when you least expect it. I said, my God. So what your sponsor is saying that or undertaker saying that? No, it's undertaker. Okay. Tell me, calm down. Yeah. So, no, let's get you know, another route. So we get another route, do those. And we're drinking in between too. Right. Like some sort of yeah. Japanese beer or whatever. Yeah. He's yeah. drinking Jack and I'm drinking there you go. whatever. And, um, take another shot. I still don't feel anything. I said, well, you know what? I mean, I'll get another shot, but I don't think this stuff is anything. Well, now it's like, Taker's like, oh, yeah, big boy? Yeah, let's get another shot. So we do another shot, and and um, about 20 minutes after that, it comes and really says hello. And, man, <laughs> a nice little, uh, nice little uh, experience there. And then we, we're still out drinking and what have you. And, it, and before you know it, it it's like, Four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. And we got to go to bed. I'm like, we got to go back to the hotel, man. It's, it's like, I got to get some sleep cause I'm dead. And we go outside. It's pouring down rain. No, we're flagging down taxis and the taxis 
just will not pick us up. Well, maybe it's because one of you is six foot 10 and long hair and covered in tattoos, right? Yeah. But I mean, I tried it too, just by myself and they weren't going to pick me up either. And so, you know, the sponsor's going, no, you got to understand, you know, that's, you know, wrestlers have very, very bad reputation here and, uh, no, no gaijings, you know, the taxis won't take gaijings, um, after like eight o'clock at night or something like that. So we're, (laughs) we're now questioning our, our wisdom to have let the, the gong magazines driver go <laughs> at night. Cause we're like, Oh yeah, no, we'll just grab a taxi. We're just going to sit here and have a few drinks. And undertaker being, uh, the undertaker. And at that time he was in a long black trench coat and would just try and get taxis to stop for him by attempting to kick them over. <laughs> And that didn't work. So they're driving so down had, the road and he decides to try to get them to stop. Understand, man, there's like traffic. It's like being in the city. It's like okay. being in New York city. I see. And, and, and you're in traffic. Right. And so he's like in the middle of the street, like Godzilla just. And so we like get him out of the road Yeah. and literally Taker and I went and hid while our sponsor went in the road and flagged the taxi down got the taxi to stop, and then we just dove in the car and basically forced the guy to take us where we wanted to go. So we took the taxi hostage. <laughs> I mean, we paid for it. But yeah, it was interesting. I had fun that trip. It sounds like it. You yeah, know, that was, that was a good time. So uh, coming out of the Revenge of the Taker pay-per-view, you have a fully formed Hart Foundation which is Bret Hart, Owen Hart, Davey Boy Smith, and Jim the Anvil Neidhart. Of course, Brian Pillman's tagging along as well. Bret Hart has a knee issue, and he needs to be, quote-unquote, written out. Uh, written out in the WWF's form, of course, is Bret having a street fight against Steve Austin. Meltzer would say, Talk about the proverbial turning a negative into a positive. The April 21st Raw is War show featured a long show angle, the highlight of which was Steve Austin injuring Bret Hart it was taken away in an ambulance in a twist. Austin was waiting in the ambulance and got some more licks in with Owen, Davey, Sean, and Brian all winding up involved in the angle before the show was over. And it resulted in one of the better episodes of raw in history. The angle was actually a last minute decision, probably put together on or around the 18th because of the worst possible thing that could happen at the present time. A right knee injury is going to require Bret Hart to have surgery and he's been the key performer in the WWF in recent weeks with his heel turn. And he actually aggravated this back on tour, uh, of South Africa and Kuwait. So listen, he's, he's the centerpiece of the whole thing. He's got issues with Sean. He's got issues with Austin. He's forming the heart foundation. He's a baby face everywhere else in the world, but maybe the hottest heel in the company here in America. And now this knee injury, boy, that just throws a monkey wrench into everything. Talk about the stress and pressure that that adds from a writing perspective. When you have sort of, all right, here's where we're going. Here's how we're getting to this pay-per-view. And then the one after that and da, 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 da. And, uh, here's what we'll do on the next three weeks TV. And then, Hey man, I got to have surgery. I'm out. 
Because it's not like, well, we'll just plop somebody out and slide somebody else in. It changes the whole show, right, Bruce? Sure it does. It's it's it sucks. Yeah. It sucks. You've got all your creative, you know, wrapped around a group and one in particular who is the focus of that group, and all of a sudden they're they come up lame. And that's that's tough. And you have to you have to regroup and you have to just dig a little deeper and come up with something else because we're dealing with human beings with real life injuries and real life problems. So, um, you know, Bret Hart didn't wake up one day and decide to get injured. No, um, it was a big blow for Brett that he was like, Oh my God, you know, he's on a roll. And then this damn knee incident to happen. So it sucked for everyone all the way around. Well, I think that's fair to say, but the result is some really, really great programming. I know we're not covering it in long form, but what do you remember about this special raw where, you know, Austin's waiting in the ambulance. This does feel like creatively, maybe when you guys were at your best and clicking on all cylinders, at least in this era, fair to say. Absolutely. But it was also looking at a way to get everyone else involved and, so that Steve would have people to work with after the fact and continue with the heart foundation, uh, in a meaningful way. But this was Steve Austin at his absolute best. This was, this was the, the rattlesnake. This was him doing what he did best. So as you're listening to this tomorrow, I'm headed out of town with my family. It's spring break here in Alabama and I am pumped. I'm ready for a break. I'm ready for some rest and relaxation, but oh Yeah. I got to pack one extra bag this time. You see last spring break, I didn't know anything about chili sleep, but I do this year and I'm fired up, buddy. This has been an absolute game changer in my life. I actually travel with a chili sleep now. And I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. What is that real? Yes. I've got one on my bed right now. Uh, It's cold on my side, a little warmer on Megan's side because she can control her temperature on her side too. Now me, I have to travel with it. I don't want to go down there and be in like a dream vacation and I'm on the beach and it's awesome, but I'm tossing and turning and not comfortable. No, no. I want to get the best sleep of my life. And to do that, I need chili sleep. You see, science tells us the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering your core body temperature. And I got to be honest, I've known that for years. I would crank down the AC to make sure that it was cold in my house when I went to bed. Eric Bischoff visited a few years ago and said it was so cold. You could hang meat in here at night, but I knew I slept better when it was cold. Well, it turns out I was right. Temperature controlled sleep repairs your muscles after a hard day's work, and it improves your cognitive function. So you always start your day feeling sharp and alert. And Hey man, let's just be straight. I'm not a bodybuilder. You know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to be productive during the day. I want to be at my best during the day. I want to go win the day. And if you're a salesperson or Maybe you're not, but you just know that your performance matters during the day, buddy, chili sleep is for you. Chili sleep makes customizable climate controlled sleep solutions. They can help you improve your entire well-being, And I really mean that I feel better than ever right now. And I give 100% of the credit to that, to chili sleep. You see, chili sleep makes the Uller. That's what I have. And the cube sleep system. Either way, we're talking hydro power, temperature controlled mattress toppers, These dudes fit over your existing mattress and that gives you your ideal sleep temperature. Like I said earlier, I like mine a little cooler than my wife. So she doesn't have to freeze to death. I don't have to crank down the AC. See, that's what I was doing before. 
Now, when I crank down the AC, man, my closets are cold. My kitchen's cold. My laundry room's cold. My dining room's cold. I don't need any of that. I need my bed to be cold. And now it is, but Megan, she wants it a little warmer on her side. I get that. So she adjusts her side. How about that? These luxury mattress pads, keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep sleep, whether you sleep hot or cold. These sleep systems are designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. But check this out. You get an app on your phone that you download, you sync it up to your unit and it works like a remote control. I'm not kidding. I can actually raise or lower the temperature on demand whenever I want. I can even automate it to where it starts getting cool at a certain type at night, certain time at night. And then it warms me up to wake me up. You can set a schedule like that. You can just set it and forget it. Here's my question for you. Can you imagine waking up and not feeling tired? Chili sleep can make that happen. And by the way, they also make the chili blanket. It's the only weighted blanket that can be paired with a control unit for the ultimate sweat-free sleep. Guys, I believe in this so well that I bought another one and I'm carrying it with me on vacation. I, it's almost like a, a credit card back in the day. I won't leave home without it. Well, I won't travel without it. Seriously. We went to the woods for the Super Bowl. I took chili sleep. Now we're headed for spring break. I'm taking chili sleep. If I'm sleeping there, I'm using chili sleep. I just feel better. I feel more productive and I've tried it without it, man. I don't want to go back. I was miserable the next day. I felt like I had like that late two afternoon uh, after lunch crash. I never feel that way when I have chili sleep. And you know what else? I'm dreaming like vivid, colorful dreams. And buddy, if it sounds like I'm selling this hard, you should try being my friends. I've got my parents, this Casio kids using it. Our gimmick attorneys using it. Scott, our hotel guys using it. Everyone I know hears me talk ad nauseum about chili sleep because I believe in it and I believe that you'll love it. So head on over to chilisleep.com forward slash Russell to learn more and save 30% off the purchase of any new cube or Uller sleep system. Now this is available exclusively for something to wrestle with listeners and only for a limited time. That's chili C H I L I sleep.com slash wrestle to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every day. Now, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know, that chili sleep's been a long time advertiser, but I want to mention this is important. This is the best offer they've ever had 30% off right now. Just go look at it. It costs nothing to look, but I had everybody in my life. Take a look and 100% of them absolutely love it. You will too. Chilisleep.com forward slash wrestle. I'm more productive. I feel better. And it's all thanks to chili sleep. Go hook it up right now. Chilisleep.com forward slash wrestle. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Um, you, uh, Brett wrote in his book that he thought that the heart foundation was kind of going to be like the WWF's answer at the time to the NWO. And really in hindsight, there really is no competing with the NWO. I mean, just the impact it had on business, but I get the idea of it's a heel faction. It's a gang. I could draw that correlation. What say you? 
I thought it was a great heel faction and it was family and it was something that people could identify with. It was based in reality. All these guys are related with the exception of Pillman, but they're, they're all related. They all come from the same family and there was a reality about them. There was a toughness and there was everyone had everyone else's back and you just felt that. And that was what made it so good. And good. It was, man, this is some of the best stuff I think the company ever did. It's also reported in the observer that there was a a plan in place for Brett to win the intercontinental title from the rock at King of the ring. That's something that we know didn't happen. Uh, and and actually the belt's going to come off the rock a little sooner and it's going to wind up going on Owen. But do you think that would have once upon a time been the plan? Maybe Brett picks up the intercontinental from the rock. No. Um, it wasn't. And, And the reason, and the reason it wasn't was I know that Brett shared this feeling as we did as well, was that at that point in Brett's career, that the intercontinental championship may have brought him down in the eyes of the fans. I agree. So let's keep, you know, keep Brett special. It's interesting that we both sort of immediately went there, but a few years ago when Cena sort of winding down, and I know we don't talk about current stuff. He was the U S champ. Does that hurt him? I mean, I think even Roman held the U S championship after he had been a world champion. Or is that just based on age or storyline, or is it not just a one size fits all? Just talk me through that. No, I think it is the participant. And I think that it's where you are in any certain story at the time. I see. So I think that any championship on anybody can be made to work. Right. At this time for Brett, I think that it would have been a step down for him because he was the leader of the pack and it just was. I don't think that it would have worked. Um, let's talk about the ratings here. The angle that we just talked about with Austin being in the back of the ambulance led to the WWF tightening the gap in the ratings a little bit. Nitro did a 3.39 and raw did a 2.75. Uh, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, you, you sort of close in the gap a little bit. Meltzer would say the hot show was important because we're going into May sweeps where the cable network ad rates are determined by primetime ratings become doubly important because of the NBA playoffs. Nitro is being moved starting April 28th to a one hour format, starting at 7 PM Eastern, which means raw will be going unopposed through May 19th and thus has a chance to do consistent three plus O ratings and raw should win the next four weeks. Last year during the playoffs, raw ratings beat the nitro show by sizable margins every week, causing people to believe some sort of momentum was going to be built, but it was all illusionary as once the playoffs were over nitro has beaten raw in the ratings every week since, but one. So let's talk about that for a minute here. The, the preemption of nitro, is that something you guys would game plan for? And you had a strategy for, or not so much. Well, it's an opportunity where you hope that you're going to be getting additional eyeballs on your show. Anytime you have a strong lead in or you have an opportunity to have more eyeballs on your show, you're going to put your absolute best foot forward. So having Nitro not on the air, not having someplace for the audience to go, I would dare say that the the playoffs were more of a um, 
more competition than than Nitro even. Of course, you just have more more eyeballs going to the playoffs as well. But at the same time, if you're if you're a dyed in the wool wrestling fan, so to speak, we hope that you're gonna switch it off basketball if you're a normal Nitro absolutely. watcher and check out Raw, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, let's talk about the, uh, the may sweeps. We haven't spent much time talking about that. Was that ever something that you guys discussed creatively? I mean, is it even on your radar? I know it's important to the network. Oh God, Yes. Okay. I, I mean, we, we programmed for May and November sweeps even uh, every now? year. Okay. Not now. No, God, I haven't done that in years. Um, but the Ray and uh, the Ray, the may and November sweeps were always very important because that is where the ad Folks, that's what they base their sales on. And if you had, you know, ratings to boast, then you could command a higher advertising rate. And uh, obviously, we know that's the name of the game. Uh, that Raw in Binghamton drew a sellout, 3,846 fans. So uh, clearly, it's a small venue, but it's a sold out venue for $67,846. And that's a hell of a gate for that amount of folks. Uh, Austin Hart isn't the only angle on the show as the building blocks were laid out for the whole Goldust Marlena interview with JR, where they're really going to quote unquote, expose them as being Dustin Runnels. How do you remember that all coming together where we had so much invested in this Goldust persona and now we're going to take the paint off and we're going to quote unquote, shoot brother. Not a fan of it. You never like have it. been a fan of it. I, okay. I think that when you build a character, build a character. And when you take, once you take the mask off that character and expose them, sometimes it's, you're now creating another character, basically. Now you have to get to audience to know the real person, if you will. And that's another, that's another building block. So I, I've, I'm not in favor of it. I'm not in favor of, you know, diesel being, Tell me, Kev, about that time there in Eastern Tennessee when you played basketball. Who the fuck cares? I like diesel. Gold dust. Tell me, Dustin, you know, I I I wanted to be, I wanted to get lost in it. I wanted to get lost in, in gold dust and Marlena. Um if Dustin and Terry were that interesting, they would have come in as Dustin and Terry. But Gold Dust was able to get so much above that and to be this incredible character that intrigued audiences and Marlena as well. Holy cow, man. They were, they were great characters that the audience was into. So I didn't, to me, it wasn't broken. So didn't need fixing. Who's going to take care of your family. If something happens to you, what would they do without your income? If you don't have a plan, you need to go to goliathlife.com. Get a quick quote for more than 20 carriers. You don't even have to leave the house. If you need a medical exam, they'll send somebody to your house or office. You're in total control. You pick the rates, you pick the payments, you pick the terms. You're in total control, but it gives you and your family peace of mind. What if something happens to your income? Hurry to goliathlife.com. Let's, uh, let's talk about the same taping. We got Henry Godwin and the Sultan being injured here. Uh, Ahmed Johnson ends up hitting the Sultan with a two by four and busts up his ribs. And Henry Godwin took the doomsday device and landed on his head. In hindsight, that Godwin injury is super scary. Is it not? Yeah. I mean, both of them are anytime that, uh, 
those type of injuries happen, it, it sucks. It sucks for the competitor and it sucks for everybody. Vader finally returns to America after his issue in Kuwait. Any hesitation to put the big man back on TV? Free at last! Free at last! Big Vader is free at last! Good Lord. Um, no, no hesitation at all. I mean, it was what it was, and <laughs> now the big bastard's back. Yeah. If only he was the <laughs> it's, it's Vader. Canadian. It's not an animal. <laughs> <laughs> I love you tickled yourself there. So, uh, Taker and Paul Bearer are, are going to have Kane involved, and they're trying to really heat this up over the next few weeks. I guess behind the scenes, this is when your creative juices are really flowing for the creation of the Kane character, right? We needed opponents for the Undertaker, and it's fine to get opponents, but to be able to have a story that backs it up is about a thousand times better. So the, the seeds of, oh my God, it's Kane. They're there, baby. We uh, we get asked this all the time. When are you going to tell us the story of Kane? We've saved it on purpose uh, because later this year we'll have the 25 year anniversary of Kane. I'm pumped about it too. Uh, the next week draws in Omaha drawing a sellout 6,617 fans paying 88 grand and change. And the show is completely based around Brett and Austin. And this is pretty fantastic. When you think about it, Brett's fresh off the surgery, so he can't wrestle, but he's still going to make the shows and that keeps him on TV, keeps the storyline going. It's kind of a no brainer, but Brett's a trooper for uh, showing up and, and, and clocking in, right? Man, Brett was there for everything. <laughs> And, you know, rehabilitating his knee, going around in a wheelchair and just doing whatever he needed to do. So hats off to Brett for that. No doubt. Uh, the observer would write this LOD pinned furnace and Lafon in three forty six when animal pinned furnace after a clothesline off the top rope. Although furnace wasn't the legal man, the match was a styles clash actually road warriors against almost anyone nowadays is a styles clash. Furnace and Lafon desperately need a manager. They're so, they're so not over. It's like they're six feet under for the first time in history. They're actually doing a gimmick about that as Furnace and Lafon's gimmick as explained by McMahon and Ross is basically that they aren't over. McMahon explained that American fans aren't used to Furnace and Lafon's quote unquote European style. So it is what it is. What do you remember about in commentary and even like an in-ring interview afterwards? I mean, we're trying whatever we can. Cause I think everyone agrees. Furnace and LaFon are very capable bell to bell, but buddy, the fans are just apathetic, right? Didn't did not care. And even bell to bell, uh, you know, yeah. Okay. They could do some moves and do some great things, but I don't know about telling stories bell to bell, both guys, incredible athletes and, and could do some incredible things. And, um, you know, especially like furnace a lot, he just, you know, Doug's a kind of mellow, easy going, just good guy, all around good guy. Uh, Phil was a little different. Um, but I, there was just no connection with the audience at all. They did not care one way or another. And I don't know that. Doug or Phil had any, any way or any knowledge of how to get the audience to care. Just kind of a, like watching that old blue dot 
help me understand. Um, what's the thinking in, all right, let's give them a gimmick where we tell everybody they're not over and maybe that'll get them over. Maybe, maybe if we tell them they're not over, they'll be over what? Well, no, I mean, that wasn't their gimmick. It just was, you know, we brought them out hoping that the audience would find something and we tried, you know, with them and the audience just didn't care. They, they weren't good on the mic. They had no gift to gab. And so after a while you, you can't ignore it. So you address it. Say, Hey folks, you know, audience really isn't into these guys, but I'm not sure they really understand them because of their style and they're quiet and they're this and they're that. Um, you can address it or not and just move on their way because they weren't connecting with the audience. But I mean, I think a lot of people would argue that that was the, and I know we're talking about current stuff, but a lot of people might argue, well, they did that with Roman reigns and WWE just camouflaged it. And eventually, of course, we all know he got put with Heyman and buddy, they're on fire. Yeah, I couldn't disagree with you more, but we'll talk about that some other time because Correct. these guys just never got a reaction. Well, I'm not comparing them to Roman Reigns. I want to be clear. I'm just saying it does feel like you add a little garnish sometimes and man, the whole thing lights up and I yeah, there was no garnish to add with them though. I mean, and, and we tried, but it just didn't, nobody cared. They, they couldn't have an edge. We tried to give them an edge, tried to get them to do stuff and just nobody, they were, they were acting and they just wanted to be wrestlers. Copy that. So as we said, Owen Hart's going to win the, uh, intercontinental title from Rocky Mavia. Uh, obviously Rocky came in with, uh, a lot of, uh, optimism, you know, this is a blue chipper right here and all of that, but the white meat baby face stuff, the audience was just not for it. Uh, so we start to hear die Rocky die chance and have crazy signs and fans are regurgitating him in a major way. Uh, when the belt comes off of Rocky Mavia. Do you think he had to be a little in his feelings about, damn it, you know, I thought I could turn this thing around or just talk me through what that must've been like for a young rock before he found himself. Well, I think that personally, I think Dwayne probably had second thoughts and feelings, but this, now this is a great comparison. At least the audience gave a shit about rock. There you go. They They wanted him to die. Okay. That's something. They hated him. Yes. They wanted him to get his ass kicked. Copy. They were throwing him up. When Ferdinand and Lafon came out, they were going, hey, uh, boy, those corn dogs look good at uh concession stand. Copy that. That's the difference. And Rock at least was getting emotion from the audience. He's a young performer, though. I mean, he hasn't been in the business very long at this point. Uh, is that a concern for him? Is he like, what am I doing? What, what kind of? He's got to be a little frustrated, right? Oh, I think he was very frustrated and very concerned, thinking like, oh, my God, you know, I should have been a hit. And you look at him and you say, he should have been a hit. But the audience sometimes does not like to be force-fed that kind of stuff, and and that's what they felt with Rocky, even though I don't think that we, in the beginning we did, but then backed off a little bit, and um, the audience will let you know. They always do. Uh, Jim Neidhart returns at the end of raw to save yeah, Brett from a Steve Austin. Yeah. They love him. He can, uh, yeah, he gets uh, the fucking rhino and he goes and heavy man. Yeah. He could, uh, run down to the Brett. Brett. He's my son. Right. Okay. 
Brett, he could get in the save with fucking big bastard. Got he strong. Is this a, uh, a stew call or is this Brett's idea since the rest of the fam's there? <laughs> All the above. Okay. No, you know, I mean, Brett was obviously a big supporter of Jim and Brett and Jim were family, but they were also best friends. So Brett didn't push as hard as Stu did sometimes, but yeah, man, Brett was in there pitching for, for Jim. Absolutely. Uh, Sid wasn't there again this week. He had an MRI done on his back on April 28th over the weekend on TV. They announced he would be at raw to do an interview, but by Sunday it was known he wasn't going to be there. Was softball season starting? Well, this is right after he lost the belt to the undertaker and it is starting to warm up. So is this same old quote unquote unreliable Sid, or do you think there was a real issue here? I think that unfortunately, sometimes with Sid's communication or lack thereof, no one will ever know. So maybe he said he was hurt. Maybe he didn't communicate. And whenever you get your wires crossed and things like that, then you just go right to the lowest common denominator. And while he'll say something, the spottings of Sid being on a softball field don't do him any favors. Yeah. Get the house you want with the payment you want at buywithconrad.com. And you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this at buywithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. The first step to buying a house is buywithconrad.com. So another talent mentioned here, Yokozuna was contacted about coming back uh, with all the injuries, but he's on blood thinning medication. So if he were ever to suffer an accidental cut, the blood wouldn't clot and it could be really disastrous. No word on when he'll get clearance to return. The last time we saw him at this point was survivor series 96. And, and unfortunately we're going to start winding down his WWF career and we've done a whole episode on it, but man, what could have been with that guy, right? My God, one of the biggest and best big men ever in the business. Um, you go back to when Rodney was four or 500 pounds and he moved like a 200 pounder, a nimble 200 pounder was absolutely amazing. So the observer would say FMW from Japan had meetings this past week with both the WWF and ECW about putting together a major joint show set for November. And in addition, there is a beginning of a dialogue between the WWF and CMLL in Mexico at Sushi Onita and Wayne Kanemura, Terry Funk and Victor Canones presented the FMW in what was reported in Japan as a three hour meeting at Titan towers on April 1st with Vince McMahon, Bruce Pritchard, and Jim Ross. According to the reports in Japan, the meeting talked about a joint show, which is being discussed as being in October, but our reports indicate November and the possibility of the WWF promoting an explosive bomb match later this year at Madison square garden as Onita, after the recent Yokohama arena show talked about having a bomb match against Anoki in a WWF show, the FMW organization proposed to the WWF doing a multi-promotional show on Sunday in November, which would include FMW Michinoku pro Pancrase, ECW and the WWF, which is obviously a strange combination. At this point, as best we can tell, the WWF agreed to continue negotiations for such a show, but no deal has been completed. FMW also proposed to bring in a crew of ECW wrestlers for three shows during that same time period, which consists of two smaller arena shows, including a Cork and Hall date, along with the big show. 
FMW has already set up a major show on September 28th at the Kawasaki baseball stadium, but they didn't bring that date up to either the WWF or ECW. So it appears they already have other ideas there. Among other items apparently discussed at the meeting included Quinones, who was the foreign booker for FMW booking a WWF tour to South America. And also Quinones, who books foreign talent for CMLL as well, getting involved in forging a relationship between the two. At this point, the WWF's relationship with Antonio Pena isn't officially dead, but it's almost certainly on life support. Buddy, this meeting uh, is is supposed to be far reaching here. Now you've shut all of this down already on our podcast today, but man, we're going to do this yeah, we're gonna... because Dave Meltzer was there in the meeting, right? He wasn't, so he but, knows exactly what we talked about, but here's my point. Somebody's calling him and telling him all this. Who do you think that is? Victor? Probably Onita. Okay. I, I mean, I have, I Onita, JR. I know I did. Those are the only other ones in the meetings. It's just amazing to me that all of this comes out. And of course, but, these are all these grandiose plans. None of it ever happened, but the idea no, that and, there's and a think, bomb match. I want you to think about the, this. He actually printed yeah. that we talked about having a bomb match in Madison Square Garden. That's not real. Yeah. Think of how just incredibly stupid that thought is. Yeah. That he thinks that that conversation would actually take place and or ever happen. Yeah, it's clearly it's ludicrous. It's, clearly it's absolutely right. ludicrous. Um, we talked about doing a co-promotion with them at some point in Japan, what they wanted to do. Yes, Onita did want to do a bomb match in the United States. He wanted to do it somewhere. Um, we had no desire at all to do a bomb match in the United States or elsewhere, for that matter. Um, so pretty much that was shot down very quickly working together and maybe doing something down the road. Sure. We talked about that. Absolutely. But, um, I, it's hard for me to get past the inaccuracies of doing a bomb match in Madison square garden. Um, <laughs> I mean, come on. Um, not, I don't think it was ever discussed, but I guarantee it would never happen in a million years. It wouldn't get past the discussion. Even like, you want to what? Do in New York City, in Madison Square Garden. No. But yes, you know, work with them on down, on down the road? Possibly. Absolutely. We would think about working with them down the road and doing something with them if the offer was right. But beyond that, there was no desire to bring Onita in. Um, Vince wasn't familiar with his work, and those that were familiar with his work were like, I can do this blood and gut stuff here with him, and that's what he wanted to do. So there was no interest in Onita at that point, and um, you know, that's kind of the the whole gist of, of that meeting. And as far as uh, EMLL, uh, the relationship with triple a was not good and they weren't coming through on their part. We were still looking for talent, Hispanic talent. Well, we went to the other promotion there. Victor did have a good relationship with Paco Lonzo with the MLL set up a meeting and Victor and I went down to Mexico city and met with Paco and his crew. Well, we know uh, what did happen and what didn't happen. Uh, what else did happen? 
is the ratings for raw when they're running unopposed with nitro being preempted. Well, it's a success. They get a 3.44 rating. Uh, the first hour is a 3.3. The second hour is a 3.58. That's a 5.2 share. The next week it's the same 3.44 got to be considered a success. Um, we didn't talk about this. You know, we did talk about anvil. When and how was it determined that Brian Pillman should be a part of the Hart Foundation? Is it because, you know, his ankle's not all the way 100%? We're just trying to find something for him to do, some meat on the bone. He already had a feud going with Austin, so it just made sense. Or what's the thinking there? Well, Pillman started his career in Calgary, and right. there's a connection with Calgary and with Brian Pillman. And to be able to keep Pillman active, and put him with a group, again, to protect him with his injuries and what have you. It made sense. They all hung out. They all got along and knew each other. So I think Brian was an honorary Hart member anyway. And you got chemistry. You got a story. Let's put them all together. Next up, we've got these gold dust segments that you talked about that you weren't really a fan of, uh, JR is going to be discussing how razor Ramon, who as a reminder is on the other channel now using his real name, Scott hall as part of the NWO didn't want to work with the character. They also talk about Dustin's issue with his own father, dusty and whether or not the character's sexuality was questioned. Are you surprised that because we're going to try this experiment again, not too long after this with Mick Foley. And I think Foley came out of it a much bigger star. I don't know that it worked that well for gold dust. Is that because the character was so well-established as gold dust? Why don't you think it worked for Dustin the way it did for Foley? Because I think that it had already been proven at that point that Dustin as Dustin Rhodes was not as colorful and didn't have the personality of a character like gold dust and gold dust was able to bring out his personality and allow him to come out of his shell and be something larger than, um, if Dustin were to get over his Dustin himself, then we would have brought Dustin in. You know what I'm saying? I know. I just don't, I, I think that the gold dust character was so strong and Dustin portrayed it so well, man, he was all in. And now when you take that, that off of him, it wasn't an alternate character. It was just him. Mick Foley was an alternate character. He had several characters that he could go in and out of using the body of Mick Foley. Right. And that in and of itself, Mick Foley was a character. So it's a completely different animal. So the build of the pay-per-view has Taker and Austin, uh, saving each other from the hard foundation attacks. But of course, eventually they turn on each other and that's probably not the best way to heat up a pay-per-view main event, but it's gotta be something where you literally have like no one else to wrestle Taker, right? I mean, you don't want to be doing this show with Austin versus Taker for the first time in a cold baby face versus baby face match, but Brett's out and well, there's a lot of other folks that are out too. Storyline-wise, you just need something. Austin's getting hot. It's worth a shot. What's the thinking, right? Well, you've got two strong characters that both have edges to them. And not ideal, because now you take two of your strongest, most popular characters and put them against each other. Now the audience has to choose. Not ideal. That kind of sucks. 
Um, but when you're left with a roster, you're going, okay, injured, injured, you have to do something. And sometimes you have to take risks. And I think this was calculated risks because Undertaker and Steve's characters, I think, could could handle it and make you want to see it. It was a, a, a really fun show, at least for me as a fan. I wish more of the readers of The Observer agreed. The show gets 47.9% thumbs down, only 27.1% thumbs up, and 25% thumbs in the middle. This is the 15th in your house. It's from Richmond, Virginia. There's 9,381 fans there. 7,681 of them paid 116 grand and change. And there's another 55 grand in merch. So at least the house is good, but creatively man, fans just didn't love it. Meltzer had this to say cold day in hell was just another Sunday afternoon pay-per-view that will largely be forgotten by the end of the week. Vader and Shamrock in the main event, Austin and undertaker were good matches. The undercard was as lackluster as ever. The show generally lacked heat. The finishes were clean. The outside interference was kept to a minimum. So that the one point it was used for storyline, like Pillman ringing the bell. So Steve Austin couldn't pin undertaker added to the show rather than resulting of it feeling like just another screw job, but it's more and more clear. The WBF is a company that has one tremendous feud on top. And even one that is getting overexposed and very little depth. Otherwise in the undercard performers who should have decent matches on paper somehow seem to get worse by the month. Now, this was a criticism that I saw a lot, Bruce, and I guess you could even argue that it was factual because the undercard of some of the nitro shows or the WCW offerings had guys like Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko and Ray Mysterio and Chris Jericho and guys who were just tearing it up. Meanwhile, the undercards here didn't resonate as well. Now on the other channel, the main events were usually something like Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper, and they usually couldn't hold a candle to say Shawn Michaels and the undertaker or Brett and Steve Austin. So the rap at the time uh, amongst the quote unquote smart marks is the WWF had the best main events in the biz, but WCW had the stronger undercard. Would you agree with that assessment? I think that we were in a transition. Um, I, I think that to a point. Yeah. I think that there was, you know, if you wanted your, your bell to bell wrestling and you wanted to, to see that. Again, depending upon on what you like, then it kind of varied. It's just different. Let me ask, is part of that difference, and I know there's lots of criticism, uh, plenty to go around, but is is part of that Vince Russo? What I mean is he gets knocked a lot, but I think one thing that we hear a lot that he is credited for is, boy, he made sure that everybody had something. As far as an undercard goes, you know, Everybody had a story. Everybody had some meat on the bone and the narrative for a long time was Vince only cares about the main event and Vince would spend a lot of time focused on the top one or two stories, but the rest of the stories were just sort of there. Do you think that when Russo started to get a little more power, maybe the undercard started to gain steam or am I just way off base there? Yeah, I think you're a little way off base. I think that it, the overall quality, and I would even dare say that, you know, at this point, it was getting guys, uh, as my good friend JR will say sometimes, it's you have a a ball team and you got to get guys in the right position. They got to get playing the, the right position. You need to be able to 
to get through that, you know, the rough edges. And, and maybe maybe somebody's playing fullback that should be playing wide receiver. And it's just uh, somebody should be playing defense when they are playing offense all the time. So, yeah, it was a feeling out period and just trying to get to the point of getting everybody in the right places. Uh, let's jump into uh, the rest of the, the criticism here, if you will. This hasn't been confirmed, but I believe neither Vince McMahon nor Jim Jim Cornette attended the show due to personal situations on the broadcast, which Jim Ross did with Jerry Lawler. They said that Rose Anderson, a close family friend of the McMahon kids often referred to as aunt Rose had passed away the previous night and Cornette's girlfriend came down with what they thought at first was appendicitis, but it turned out to be something less serious. Do you remember this? The rare pay-per-view where Vince misses a show. I don't think it was that rare, <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, every once in a while, yeah, you'd miss a show for a birthday or just, you know, something coming up. But I think that at this time, yeah, I think it was just something going on with him that he wasn't up to making. Do you ever meet aunt Rose? Oh yeah. You got any good aunt she Rose was, stories you can share with us? No, aunt Rose was, uh, she was dusty's mother. Uh, Dusty was one of Vince's best friends growing up and who he went to military school with. And she was just this, you know, really wonderful woman that took Vince in as a kid and kind of, you know, gave him a place to go when he didn't always have a place to go. And she was just a real nice, real sweet lady. That's awesome, man. We we don't hear stories like that about Vince. So it's cool to get to hear that. And Hey, there's more to this Walt Disney character than maybe what we fans know. Uh, let's also talk about the dark match here. Uh, rockabilly is going to pin Jesse James in three minutes and 36 seconds for the DDT and the free for all match. James entrance music was messed up. It seemed like an angle, but nothing came of it for such a short match. It was slow paced with no heat. The finish was cool, but it's a dud and boy, you want to talk about two guys that are just a ship with no sail, bringing back Billy Gunn with the honky tonk man is rockabilly and still trying to breathe life into a three-year-old angle with Jesse James as the road dog. And I'm the real double J. Well, he was, yeah, I get that, but Lord, it ain't long before you guys figure out, Hey, you know what? Let's just throw them together. See what happens. And I'll be damned the new age outlaws. Here we go. Uh, but just thinking about that match, them two against each other in terrible gimmicks tells you where we are. And the attitude is right around the corner. Thanks for the feedback. This is a show yeah. where we're both allowed to speak. Well, you had it. You got it all. You said it right. <laughs> now, okay, Conrad. Hunter Hearst Helmsley's in the first match here, and he's going to beat Flash Funk, the former Two Cold Scorpio, in 10 minutes and five seconds. And Meltzer would call it a major disappointment. He says Funk's offense was way off, both in cutting down on the acrobatics and what he did generally looking bad. He said Helmsley shows no aptitude in being able to carry someone. The Funkettes weren't there with the reason given they were being intimidated by China. The match had no heat except for pops for China's interference. And it was a slow paced match. The finish would see Funk go up top for a moonsault, but Helmsley split his legs. Helmsley climbed up for a backward superplex, but flipped Funk all the way over in the move and then hit the pedigree for the pin. After the match, China picked Funk up and crotched him on the top ropes. Funk was said to be less than thrilled, not only to be in his jobber position, but especially for having to do that last spot and putting China over. 
you know, I only read that because I wanted to lay it out that Meltzer said that Hunter couldn't carry somebody. I don't know about that. He's pretty critical of uh, Scorpio, but then he says essentially that he had an issue with uh, helping put China over. What, do you well, remember that, that? That overall attitude is probably what contributed to the lackluster match itself. Of course. I guess what I'm trying to drive into is: Did you have to deal with that a lot? Try to sell guys a little bit, if you will, on, hey, man, we need you to do this for China. Was that a thing or not so much? It, it really depended on, upon the performer. Some yes, some no. But I think the guys, you know, that got it, got it and understood it, and it was good for them. You know, you look at, uh, I always point to Jeff Jarrett. Jeff Jarrett did unbelievable business with China. Yeah. Uh, with so a gun, did Eddie Guerrero with a gun, but yeah, I mean, he, he put a gun in Vince's belly and held him up. Everybody knows that it's well-established. Oh uh, yeah. Well, was it, what, what, what was it? Was it a pea shooter? Yeah, Nine right. millimeter? I don't know. So next up mankind is going to beat Rocky Maivia. Think about this guys. This is years before or it feels like it. it's really just a year and change before the whole survivor series show, right? Survivor series, 98. Mankind, who's this lovable, beloved character at that point against the evil rock, who's going to join the corporation and rock becomes the champ for the very first time. And then they have just an incredible series of matches, but their first pay-per-view meeting is here in May of 1997. The evil mankind gets the win in eight minutes and 46 seconds. Mankind hit a rolling body block off the apron to the floor. The two are brawling on the ramp. My via gives him a urinagi suplex on the ramp. And Meltzer called it another match with no heat. After a shoulder breaker, Maivia signaled to the crowd for his finisher, and there was little reaction and even some booing. He went up for a flying body press, but Mankind reversed the move, rolling with it and winding up with the mandible claw for the submission. Good finish. During the match, they almost downplayed Maivia's unsuccessful reign as IC champ, with Ross saying that the night Maivia beat Helmsley, the better man didn't win that night. Star and a quarter. So this isn't necessarily an outright burial, but it ain't far from it. And Mick even wrote in his book that at the time he thought the company should just cut bait on Rocky. And that's a fair question. Why didn't you, if you try this and it doesn't seem to be working, I mean, you've cut bait before. What was it about the rock that said there's something there? Let's just hang on. I mean, clearly he, it worked out. He had it. Okay. Rock had it and rock had potential and rock had something that a lot of performers never had. And to cut bait at that point wouldn't have been a wise decision, obviously, but it wasn't okay. You know, then what? No, that would have been a horrible idea because there was something there and the audience gave a shit. They didn't like him, but they liked to see him get his ass kicked. So, okay, you got something there. Now let's work, you know, hopefully try and work to that at some point. But it also at the same time, the feeling was didn't want to turn him heel yet, which not everybody agreed with. I just want to recap when we're being critical of the undercard here in hindsight, this is what we're complaining about the new age outlaws against each other. They are new age outlaws, triple H and two cold Scorpio. Flash Funk, Mick Foley, and The Rock, Mankind, and Rocky Maivia. I'm aware. I'm just saying, in hindsight, even if on paper this feels like, man, this is not as good of a show as a WCW undercard, 
buddy. When you just run through the names, it's like, well, that's a hall of famer. That's a hall of famer. That's a Mount Rushmore. That's, I mean, this, it's a studded out deal here. Well, let's get to the next hall of famers trilogy. It's announced on raw that they're going to have three matches at three different times during the show. But during the pregame show, Farouk said he was hurt, which he was. And that Savio Vega was hurt, which he wasn't. And that crush had the flu, which he didn't. So they wanted all three of the matches in a row. Johnson agreed providing Farouk wrestle first for whatever reason, Farouk didn't go first, but the matches were still in a row, which makes me think there was some communication signals crossed before the show crush was first and gorilla monsoon ordered the rest of NOD to leave ringside crush several times signaled for NOD to hit the ring and interfere, but they never did seemingly again, building a tease for a potential turn. Crush went for the heart punch, but Johnson blocked it and hit a reverse heel kick for the pin in five minutes and 38 seconds. And this was better than previous Johnson crush matches has been, but that's faint praise to be sure. Johnson beat Vega by DQ in five fifty-seven. Vega came out selling his ankle and then jumped around to make sure everyone realized it was all a ruse. He dominated the match and destroyed Johnson with chair shots to leave easy pickings for Farouk. And there wasn't much to that segment. And then Farouk and uh, Johnson went two minutes and 10 seconds. It was also better than you'd think considering who was involved. Johnson didn't sell for long and got a good near fall with an inside cradle. He hit the spine buster and the Pearl river plunge, but Farouk kicked out of the plunge to the crowd's amazement. Farouk then hit a chop block and scored the pin with the dominator three quarters of a star. So a lot of changes here. We're going to have it spread out. No, we're going to do it back to back. Farouk's up first. Really? He's last. I guess that's just because heels lie. Right, Bruce? Exactly. That's yeah. exactly what they do. And that's what the, what the whole thing was. It was trying to get away from, you know, Ahmed, uh, on Farouk's part, putting everybody in front of him and so on and so forth. And yeah, nobody was sick and nobody was hurt. That was, that's, that's being a heel by God. Um, but you're welcome. You're welcome. It wasn't great by any stretch of the imagination. Well, you apologized twice last week for this. And now you're saying you're welcome. You yeah. Just, yeah. Because I just gave you ammunition and you're welcome. Is this like, um, pulling the bandaid off a little bit? Let's just get it over with. Let's just bang, bang, bang. Yeah. Would you rather have had it spread out? No. Something to look forward to later on. No, but wait, there's more. <laughs> yeah. I don't need three Ahmed entrances on the show. Now, ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the ring from Pearl River. Yeah. I mean, come on. Next up, and I know we haven't had a, a home run show so far, but these last two matches, buddy, outstanding, especially the first one. I still remember it to this day. I was watching it with my pal, Jonathan. He brought over some Domino's pizza where he worked at the time. And we could not wait to see this because we thought we were going to see a real fight and I'll be damned. We kind of did. It's Ken Shamrock and Vader. And Shamrock's going to win by submission with an ankle lock in 13 minutes and 21 seconds. And what was billed as a no holds barred match. There must've been some sort of a late booking change as the graphic and Howard Finkel's knockdowns or Howard Finkel's ring announcement talked about standing eight counts, similar to the dramatic UWFI knockdowns that both will be familiar with. But Jim Ross then said the rules have been changed. So let's talk about that. Um, we're, we're. Presenting this as a no holds barred match, which on paper sounds like, well, we've heard that before. This is an old gimmick in wrestling, nothing new, 
but I think a lot of people assume, well, it's got to be a little different because Ken Shamrock's in there. And I think that's interesting because I think a lot of the folks who believe that myself included had no idea that Ken Shamrock actually started wrestling like 11 years prior to this and then went and did MMA. But now that he's coming in, I think a lot of us had the expectation, Hey, this is not going to be a quote unquote wrestling match. This is a shoot fight on WWE pay-per-view. And it feels like there's a little bit of who's on first here with Howard Finkel and Jim Ross. Does Howard have old notes? Is Jr. hearing from Vince in his ear or Vince isn't even there? Just talk me through how this is put together. Well, I think this is the right hand, not knowing what the left hand was doing and kind of getting through it. Just mistakes on down the line. That's all it is. Uh, Shamrock gets a pretty big pop coming out as the early action went to the ropes. Ross tried to explain the difference is that UFC has no ropes. Ross was very positive in his explanations of UFC said he enjoyed the shows while Jerry Lawler seemed to be getting mad, both worked and otherwise as many veteran wrestlers who don't react when life goes on, when they do something, when the changes, when something changes with the business they're in. Okay. The match was very good. And that it was realistic enough to be suspenseful in a sport way. It had enough pro wrestling maneuvers to make it not look like a UFC match. Vader rolled out of the ring several times early as Shamrock got the early edge. Shamrock hit a suplex and went for a knee bar, but Vader rolled out. Vader took control with stiff clotheslines and took Shamrock down with uh you want to call it, you want to say what that is there? There you go. Shamrock used the, the triangle choke, which you know, as the. Yeah. The, uh, second Kula but Vader lifted him and threw him. Uh, <laughs> so can I do this next one? Vader suplexed. Oh, you got that one. Shamrock yeah, that over one. the top rope to the floor with Shamrock selling his knee as if it was injured on the landing. Vader ran uh, him a few times into the ring steps and Vader wound up with a bloody nose. He goes for a standing ankle lock. When Shamrock rolls out of it, Vader went for a choke on the ground, but Shamrock escapes. Vader missed a moonsault, but it actually grazed Shamrock. And then Shamrock body slammed Vader, went for the ankle lock and half crab, but Vader made the ropes both times. Shamrock threw a lot of hard knees and forearms in the corner, similar to a Masawa or Kawada type offense, but every bit of stiff. Vader cut him off with a solid shot to the head and then went down to capitalize on it. But Shamrock maneuvered him into an ankle lock for the tap out victory. This wasn't the kind of match you could do every night, which explains why the UWFI and rings guys generally only work one match per month, three and a quarter stars. So it's not a shoot fight, but it's not your standard wrestling match. It's hard hitting. It's quote unquote, strong style. It's whatever you want to call it. But I'm sure part of you, Bruce had to think, Hey man, this is kind of awesome that they're quote unquote snug, but I'm sure part of you had to think in the idea to make it look like it hurt, but not actually hurt. I mean, part of you had to be like, I don't know about that. Right. The old school in me always says that, um, at the same time you watch the match. And I thought that Kenny and Vader had great chemistry and both of those guys like to work that style. They like to work a very rugged and snug style. So to that, you know, hats off to both of them because they could do it. And to me, I thought it was a great display of what Shamrock was all about. And you got to see, you know, this badass guy do what he did and what he made his name for. And as you said earlier, 
yeah, Ken had worked before in the Carolinas and had tried his hand in wrestling before going into the shoot fighting and UFC. Didn't really click. Ken's gimmick became, you know, being that UFC shoot fight guy. And I think that Ken, as far as that gimmick and doing that, was absolutely one of the best. I mean, I love this match because it did feel real. And as a wrestling fan, I think that's what I've always gravitated to. And Bruce, you probably too. I think this is a fair generalization to make that by and large wrestling fans are sort of wink, wink. We're in on it. Right. But every now and again, we see something and we get excited because it's like, okay, I know that that was a show and this was a show, but now this, well, this, that was real. Because when he said blah, 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 and when he did da, 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 man, we really get excited about that. Well, right. when they fight for them, for them titles and it's, know, it's real in Bruce in the, in the, in the diamonds and then belts that that's, that's real stuff. Well, I mean, you can see in the match, Shamrock is beating shit out of Vader and it looks like Vader gets pissed off for real and takes a couple legit swings at Shamrock. And if you're watching this, you gotta be thinking, uh, what's a live round and what's not? Because some of them, well, they look a little tough. Well, two tough guys in there throwing bones, man. That's what happens. And that moment, even though you are a 17 time karate, black belt, hall of fame, champion, black belt, goddamn guru, you had to be glad, man. I'm glad I'm sitting in the back wearing a headset right now. Yeah, yeah. Look, man, I'll I'll go back and quote old Lord William Regal when he would say, "Goes, you know, because I got into this for the entertainment." Uh, <laughs> you know, man, I never ever have talked about being any kind of tough guy by any stretch of the imagination. And yeah, I, I was in this business for the entertainment, not not going in and get my ass kicked. Well, let's get to our main event. It's Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin. No, it's not Madison Square Garden, Highway to Hell, SummerSlam 98. This is more than a year prior. It's Stone Cold's first WWF Championship title shot on pay-per-view. It's The Undertaker's second title defense since he's won it at uh, WrestleMania. And they get plenty of time, 20 minutes and 6 seconds. But let's remember now, Steve Austin is a babyface. And he's feuding with Bret Hart and the undertaker and not really always getting along with Shawn Michaels and the undertaker. Well, he's taken on all comers, but his real problem is Kane. Uh, whatever Kane's going to be, it's Paul bear. He's just been a real thorn in his side. So now that we've got the, uh, the stage set, the Hart Foundation's going to come to ringside. They've got five seats set up with the storyline that they bought the tickets from scalpers and hilariously, uh, Lawler has some great lines. Um, when Austin attacked Owen Hart, Lawler starts screaming about how the wrestlers aren't supposed to be attacking the fans, which is just great stuff. Uh, later when they're all sitting there calmly, Lawler said, it shows that all the WWF fans don't misbehave. And at the end, when they're in a post-match, they all attack the undertaker and locker <laughs> Lawler says, it's like after a soccer game, the fans are attacking the players. The match started slow and the fans didn't boo either one, but they didn't really know how to react. It was a good match, but not on the level of most WWF pay-per-view main events with Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels involved. Austin wrapped Taker's knee around the post, but Undertaker wound up smacking Austin's face into the post. Undertaker did his rope walk, but Austin sweeps his legs, causing him to crotch himself. Austin goes for a superplex, but Undertaker threw him off. Undertaker missed an elbow, 
and undertaker used a sleeper, but Austin used a jawbreaker and the two trade low blows. And the biggest pop is actually Austin flipping off the ref. Let's take a timeout right there. This is when Austin is really hitting his stride as a character. He's been clicking on all cylinders since before survivor series, but I think post WrestleMania 13 is when it really starts to catch momentum, at least from my perspective, flipping off the referee though, gets the biggest pop. Like that's crazy in hindsight. Is it not? Well, it was just Steve being Steve. And I think that the audience really, you know, yeah, it was a cheap pop. It's awesome. I guess what I'm saying is that's when, you know, the audience is, is really invested in the character. Like the big pop wasn't for a pile driver or a DDT. And those are great things. I'm not, I'm not disparaging it, but just saying he didn't even have to say anything just with body language and his gestures, the crowd comes unglued because it's just, they're in tune with him. Does that, I mean, am I explaining that right? They, they were, and you know, you talk about that moment, but it was even before WrestleMania 13 when, you know, Brett was coming back before and the early vignettes that Steve did with the dogs barking at the yep. fence and things like that. And that swagger and that BMF walk and Hey Brett, um, that to me is when the audience really got to, Oh, okay. I get this guy. I understand what the hell he is. And that's my guy. I wish I could do that. I, uh, I love this match. Undertaker goes to, uh, do a choke slam, but Austin comes back snapping undertaker's neck on the ropes and hits him with the stone cold stunner. And this is when Brian Pillman hops the rail and rings the bell. And that causes some confusion when the match is restarted undertaker goes for the tombstone, but Austin reverses it. Undertaker reverses it again and drops Austin for the pin. After the match, Jim Neidhart, Owen Hart, Davey Boy, and Pillman all attack the Undertaker. Austin sees Brett by himself in the wheelchair and knocks him off the wheelchair, grabs one of the crutches and hits the ring and clears house with it. After the heels are run off, Austin jumps Undertaker and hits the Stone Cold Stunner, flips him off, and leaves him laying three stars. So we know eventually this main event is going to be big business, but this told a great story. Uh, it, it kept everyone looking strong or whatever the phrase is you want to use. But I thought this was really well done for a baby face match. Having the heart foundation there helped add to the story. Yeah, it was, it was tough. And thank God having the heart foundation because, you know, gave you toys to play with, if you will, without damaging either one of the baby faces, but it's also a testament to what Steve and Mark could do at the time to be able to go out as their characters. They were strong enough to do it on their own and not have the audience kind of shit on it. And it wasn't boring. And both characters came out whole at the end and nobody lost. I, I wanted to know what you thought, or if you remember hearing anything specifically from the undertaker, because as great as this is, it does feel like his match with Brett is almost a backdrop to Austin and his issue with the heart foundation. But he's supposed he being the undertaker pronouns, pal is supposed to be the champion Did he understand this was just necessitated by injury or. Well, Absolutely. And, and undertaker also knew where we were going with the story with Kane. Right. So there, there were a lot of masters being served and unfortunately injuries happen and you've got to make calls sometimes that are going to put a hiccup in your plans, but taker knew he was going with Kane and knew what the future held. 
Uh, Michael Burgett wants to know, I've always wondered given the huge momentum that Austin had coming out of WrestleMania 13, was there ever any consideration of putting the title on him here? Absolutely not. Not at that time. No, we wanted to do the build with Steve and have the audience just really behind Steve wanting Steve to get the championship. Nathan says, since this pay-per-view was at the Richmond Coliseum and for all intents and purposes, that arena is now closed up. Any memories from that building? Worst catering, uh, anywhere in the world. Really? Yeah. Why do you remember that? Tell me what you remember about it being so bad. Uh, it was disgusting. It was, uh, I think the Hebners ran it and, uh, it was the worst catering. It was just terrible. It was bad. It was like, um, I think four day old hot dogs and stuff. And it, it just was, it was bad. Disgusting. <laughs> it was a lot left over. So I think that whatever we left over each time would be reused the next time we came into town. I love you for that. Uh, Daryl wants, <laughs> Daryl wants to know. <laughs> What was the backstage reaction to the Hebner spot in the main event where he returned Austin's middle fingers and loudly yelled F you? Um, not good, man. Referee needs to be impartial. And while, you know, yeah, okay. gets a pop. Not good. Scott wants to know all cool with Vader and Shamrock after that stiff bout. Absolutely. Both professionals and both like it that way. We preferred it. If they'd gone out there and kind of lollygagged around, I think both guys would have been pissed. Guy John says, we hear many references about things done back then that would not be done now. Does that include knocking someone out of a wheelchair or is it more of a heel thing? Like Jim Cornette would say, well, it depends. If they need to be knocked out of the wheelchair. Then all fair game. Uh, Ben Ledbetter wants to know, Bruce, was there any heat from any direction on Ken Shamrock for breaking Vader's nose? Or was this simply a, it ain't ballet scenario. It ain't the symphony folks. Uh, Chase Lamar says it's been said that undertaker and Austin never had fantastic chemistry chemistry in the ring with each other. It just never seemed to click. Does Bruce think this one might actually be their best one? It may be because they, I don't know that they really had a lot of pressure on them. Right. So maybe that kind of helped as far as that chemistry, what have you, but it's true. They never really did have great chemistry together working against each other. Bruce, is there anything else you remember about this show you can share with us? I like going back and visiting these in your houses. What about cold day in hell? We don't have many in your houses left before you guys sort of move away from the idea. Chat me up in your house, cold day in hell. Anything stand out? Well, you know, actually the only thing that I really do remember was when it was over being so thankful it was over. One of those days, you know, Vince not being there and just a lot of, different obstacles having to go through. And at the end of the night, just going, okay, we got through that one and we got through without anybody else getting injured severely. And you could, you could breathe, but it was one of those asshole puckered, uh, evenings for sure. Let's, uh, let's talk about next week. I'm pretty excited about this. We're going to talk about your, your run in TNA in 2017, how it came to be your entrance, your exit, what the podcast had to do with it. Jeff Jarrett, global force wrestling, you being back on camera. And then of course your old pal, Jim Cornette firing you on TV. What else do you think we'll be talking about? Oh, I don't know. I'm sure you'll do your research, but I will say this about that time. It was the first time that I had ever been somewhere where I was just a talent. 
And for me, that was fun. I had a lot of fun at that stint. It was Impact 2017. It was a short run, but it was it was fun. And I, I got to do, uh, I helped him out a little bit with TV, but it, that all that was my call. I, I wasn't, I didn't have to worry about creative on a day-to-day basis. I didn't have to worry about anything in the office. I showed up. I got what I was doing for that evening, and I went out, performed, and I went back to the hotel at the end of the night. But uh, it was a fun time. That was a really, really fun run, I got to tell you. It was pretty surreal to see our podcast graphic on the big screen. It was pretty surreal to see you sporting something to wrestle shirts on TV. You even managed to name drop me in a backstage vignette, but... It all started with a random call around the time of Royal Rumble 2017. And I remember you calling saying, Hey, you're not going to believe this. And then I remember you calling me your first day down there from the hotel room saying, you're not going to believe what happened in the hotel lobby. We've got a lot to talk about next week. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we hope you'll uh, check us out. You don't forget you get all these shows early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. As we heat up the, this summer, June's going to be a hot month for something to wrestle. We're going to be covering three different King of the Ring shows. What I would consider the epic failure of 1995 in Philadelphia with Mabel, uh, Triple H finally overcoming whatever backstage politics there were in 1997, and Brock Lesnar being anointed as the man in 2002. We'll also hit Vengeance 2007, where we talk about John Cena defending the WWE title against Bobby Lashley, King Booker, Mick Foley. And Randy Orton and Edge defending the world title against Batista. That's a pay-per-view where Johnny Nitro and CM Punk battle over the now vacant ECW title. That I'm wasn't sorry. That wasn't the original plan, though. Uh, tragedy befell. But we'll talk about all of that and more in the month of June. It's going to be a good time, man. It was, this was fun. I think uh, we may have our new routine. This Sunday recording shit. We may have to keep this going. Yeah, we'll see about that. Yeah, you guys got to stop doing Sunday pay-per-views. It'll make it a little easier. You think so? No, you'll find okay. Vince will find something else for you to do. I know how the way I know how that works. Yeah, yeah, so do I. So uh, check us out, boys and girls. Something to wrestle every single Friday. Anywhere you get your podcast, hit that subscribe button. Tell your friends, and we'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Rock on. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on a sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.